Good morning, and welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. On this episode, we have Jen Volberting, who is a professor at Oklahoma State University, uh, among other things that she does, and we talk about that in, in our intro to the episode list off the long list of things she's involved in. Uh, this is a great episode, just kind of talking about the general state of the profession from Jen's point of view, as well as just looking at education going forward with the transition to the master's program, what they've seen so far down at Oklahoma State and where we see it going in the future. Um, a lot of good little insights and opinions on this and some things you know that maybe not are common in terms of the thought process of it, but maybe what some of the profession needs in order to keep growing and expanding and working on some of the inequalities with pay and different things that are currently out there for us. So really good episode for a lot of those ideas. A lot of questions came off of this and definitely a follow-up will be needed. Um, As always, we are brought to you by Mueller Sports Medicine. Uh, We are powered by them. Again, check them out. Um, Get in contact with them. If you're on the fence about anything with them, don't hesitate to contact their sales reps, everyone we've come in contact with. Um, we're not just saying this has been awesome. Uh, they truly treat you like a part of their team. And so with that, enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode of Athletic Training Chat. We are on with Jen Bulberding, who is at Oklahoma State University. Um, somehow or other, Jen and I, I've kind of followed Jen around the South as I showed up at Kansas when she was <laughs> with the Jayhawks and then left for a little bit and then somehow ended up at Oklahoma State again um, to reconnect there. Um, she is the Interim Department Chair of Athletic Training as well as an Associate Professor um, and the Athletic Training Program Director. and the co-director of the armor program, which you'll have to tell what that is. Um, So you got a couple things going on, you know, with the start of a program that is in its third year or fourth. We are actually in our fifth year at the master's level. I guess I've been gone longer than I thought. Um, So (laughs) with that, I just wanted to turn it over to you to fill in any more background that you'd like. Sure. Uh, so as Joel said, that uh, I've been around, but I've been at Oklahoma State uh, since 2010. Uh, but we moved, when we moved to the master's level in 2015, uh, we actually moved to the medical school campus over in Tulsa. So we're at the Center for Health Sciences, which makes us a little bit of a unique program where we're a little bit separated from our athletic department and then the traditional undergraduate campus. Um, but I don't think that that truly impacts us as much because of the master's level, as we'll talk about it, it provides a little unique opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, so clinically, I did work at Georgia Tech as a grad assistant uh, with football, swimming, diving. I worked women's basketball at Seton Hall, and I worked women's basketball at the University of Kansas. So I like to say I've, I've done a little bit of both worlds, and now I've been in academics for, for a little bit longer than, than I was clinically. Uh, so you asked about the Armor Program. The Armor Program is uh, a program that I created with a, a fellow colleague here at OSU, and we work with our rural and local community fire departments 
departments, first responders, uh, local police, uh, communities. So uh, we're looking to help them, you know, obviously create healthy environments, but also how can we help the city keep people on the job? Uh, so we're currently in two small rural communities uh, outside of Tulsa and looking to expand uh, with some, hopefully, cr fingers crossed, eventually some federal funding. Awesome. Um, Austin actually had just done a bunch of that in Milwaukee um, with UWM and then we're in process of getting in with the local fire department and lacrosse here. So um, we will actually probably go and check this out and maybe ask you some more about that just to get some better ideas on things that seem to be working. So Yeah, that's, uh, that's actually where I go Wednesday afternoon. So as soon as I'm done here, I, I head up to the fire station. So it's, it's pretty fun. Is it more athletic training services based, like evaluation and some? Absolutely. That's, that's the goal, whether it's geared towards? Right. Well, with me right now, it's, it's more athletic training services. Um, we are either going to get some federal funding or we're actually, one of the communities is actually hopefully going to budget for a 20 hours a week athletic trainer. So we're looking for a wow. doc student eventually. Um, but with that person, they do a little bit more strength and conditioning, more kind of ergonomics. But um, right now with me, my hands are full in three hours a week with just every possible random injury they could come up with. And they come into the office and I'm like, really, what did you do this week? So I, I've got those frequent flyers that have been in the fire service 20 plus years and they're falling apart. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah. Well, I know when we reached out, um, it wasn't to talk about athletic training <laughs> in the first hundred <laughs> setting. So maybe there will be another one um, in the future around that. But it was more um, just kind of the changing landscape of athletic training education. I know you guys, uh, when I was at Oklahoma State, you guys had a master's in athletic training. It wasn't an entry level, but it was the continuation, which I never quite understood why our GAs didn't fully embrace that as much as maybe they should have, at least the ones right. I knew, because I thought it was <laughs> pretty cool. Um, but just kind of talking about the changing landscape, and you know, obviously you've been doing this now for five years. Um, you know, what is your take on how that's going to impact the profession right. as it really keeps taking hold and what we're two and change years away from it being completely in that realm? Yeah. You know, I think everybody was really hesitant originally about the idea of moving into the professional masters. And, and I can understand that it changes hard. You're right. There's books out there that, that are literally titled changes hard. Um, but I think one of the unique things when you move to the master's level is you get a lot of freedom. And although that idea of freedom for some people is a little bit scary from an academic standpoint, um, we really embrace that idea of freedom. You know, we kind of took some of the strengths of our post-certification master's program that those students embraced, you know, uh, corrective exercise, um, all of that, the CES, the PES, and we kind of blended that into what we really wanted a master's level program to look like. Um, and I, and I'm kind of kind of set this up as a foundation for why I think the master's is a great way is we didn't just take our undergraduate degree program and move it to the master's level. Um, we sat down and we looked at the standards and we looked at what we did really well. We looked at where our students maybe had some deficiencies and what we had in the professional master or post certification masters, and we put it all together. 
And now that we've been through this a few times, we've got three graduating classes. Um, what we've been able to do is we've recognized that we actually have more time at the master's level. Now we have a really kind of a, a different setup than most programs in the fact that we do block scheduling. So we do eight weeks of fully immersion into the classroom. So they take all of their didactic piece and then they go out and they spend eight weeks, eight weeks, eight weeks, and then 13 weeks, their last one. Um, and they're fully immersed in the clinical rotation. Yes, they have a few clinical assignments to help kind of hit those proficiencies. But what it really may, means is that those students know what it means to be an athletic trainer, that they don't actually go to class in the morning and they only see four to five hours, maybe three hours a day of what it is. But by doing that, what we found is that we have extra space. You know, we've got these new skill sets that we're able to provide students. You know, we're in a unique situation where we're in a medical school. And so we have a lot of positions available to us. Um, so we can teach suturing, we can teach innovation, we can go into radiology, we can do all of those things. But we're also integrating uh, hot grip certification into our curriculum. We're able to do all of those pieces where at the master's level you have so much freedom and you can create it to the way you want it to be. You can make it a traditional model, you can make an immersive model, you can and make it a blended model but at the graduate level when you're not competing with physics or english or humanities which are great things as well as potentially greek life and other things our students come in and they focus on what they want to do and what they're doing at that time you know the other question when people started moving to the master's level was, well, it's only two years. What kind of clinical education are they going to get? Are they going to get as many hours? And I can say over the course of our four, and I don't know if that, I'm sorry about that. Um, the, over the course of our four um, cohorts, they have gotten more hours, clinical hours in five rotations over two years than our undergraduate students got ever got over the course of three and a half years much so to the point that we're talking not just 50 60 hours more we're talking two to three hundred hours more um, I think last year's graduating class from OSU had on average about 1500 clinical hours over the course of five clinical rotations so in that way it makes it challenging but I, I think that it's it's really allowing students to get a really good idea of what it means to be an athletic trainer um, over the course of those hours, but they're really well prepared right. when they get out of there. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Um, Austin, as he's sitting here, is in his first capstone in his yep. second year of his MSAT, which is why he's here, so he's my shadow for the semester. Very good. Um, so, yeah. I'd be curious as how many hours you ultimately end up with. I just checked, and uh, so far for this semester, I'm at 470. Yeah. So. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that when you're not battling everything else, we're creating better athletic trainers. Right. And, and ultimately, that's the goal, right, is, is we want really highly qualified athletic trainers to get out there into the world. And that was one of the other questions we had because I know that's a conversation we've had here that in theory with a master's student, you're getting a better 
student in quotes um right and if that's what you guys have seen thus far and i would guess like you said yes because you don't compete especially being off the traditional campus like i know right. if i was in a program that was at the medical school first off i'd probably have a little inferiority complex because of all the other <laughs> people around but then that would also make me want to get a lot smarter in order to go and show them that oh yeah that's great you're doing this but i'm also doing right. thing, so Right. I mean, that's a great example. And I think I wish more people had that exposure because our students, um, we take, we don't take full courses with the medical students, um, but we take pieces of it. And, and spe specifically in our non-orthopedic course, our students are going in and absolutely crushing the medical students on, you know, cranial nerve assessment, history taking, because they've had the experience, they've had the exposure where you've got medical students who are first and second year medical, they've never seen a patient other than a standardized patient. Right. And, you know, I think it's given our students a little bit of, of credibility amongst it because they're able to look at a medical student and say, I know when you get out of medical school, what you have, what, what your knowledge is. We provide, our department provides the sports medicine education to the medical students over the course of four hours, right? So, so a, a general practice GP comes out of the first year, two years of medical school with four hours of sports medicine knowledge. That's not enough, right? We do for our family medicine residents down in a hospital, we do an eight hour sports medicine once a year. I can't teach everything in eight hours. So it's, it's allowed our students to understand that you do have to stand up to a physician that's not an orthopedic or a sports medicine fellowship trained physician to say, no, this is my specialty. I know this. I'm the expert. And the research backs us up. I mean, that's the great thing about it. So, you know, in our students in our non-orthopedic rotation, they're in the hospital. So that's another place where, and that's where all of the master's programs can get a lot of that information and get that out there. Um, but I think overall, at the master's level, you have more mature students. You have those who are, they actually know what they want to do. They're not just using us as a stepping stone. Right. And they're getting out there and they're really doing a good job and they're well prepared for any job that they come out of and get. Yeah, I know some people have asked me just like, you know, what was the point of going to it? And that's one I usually come back with is, you know, nothing wrong with the ATPT, but now you're getting people that actually want to put the time into doing this. And like you said, it's not a stepping yeah. step or just a way to get to where they think they want to go. And I think that will be long term better for the profession, even if it causes traction in the short term. Right now, we have a student that's a second year that worked as a PT, that is a DPT, and figured out that, guess what, when you're a DPT, unless you're with an athletic team, you don't get to see the patients you think you're going to see. <laughs> he's coming back, and he's getting his MAT because he realized that where he wanted to work for the rest of his life, he wasn't going to get there being a PT. Yep. So. That's a hard inroad to make sometimes. It is. It is. So we asked this in kind of a couple different ways. So maybe we'll nix the one at the end. But obviously, 2022, everybody switches over or has to be. Um, so there right. would be a little left for the undergrad finishing up. You know, there's some DATs that are already out there. Do you see the evolution continue on that way or because it took so long to get to the MSAT? You know, what is you in? 
your mind the 10 to 15 year block of this? Are we going to lose programs? You know, just what do you see? Um, that's that's a really unique question, Joel, because I, I I'm a I'm a person that that has a fairly strong opinion on that, and and with the new standards that are coming out, the 2020 standards, yep. um, I think that it's going to be harder for some programs to meet the 2020 standards, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that's a bad thing because I think at a certain point in time we we're focusing in on third-party reimbursement we're focusing in on all of these emerging practices we have to ensure that that we are setting students up to be successful at all of these places and 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 that piece and so you know some of the places that are that are going to struggle with you know interprofessional education that's important that's that's you know as well as i do you work with so many other healthcare providers and so if you can't in a program create IPE opportunities, both in the classroom and the clinical, that's a struggle. Um, I do think that, and again, this might be a little bit my more my opinion, but I, I do think we need to get rid of some programs. I think that we have a lot of programs out there that, that, that are barely meeting the standards, and there's nothing wrong with barely meeting the standards, but we have to look at what do we want as a profession? And, right. and who do we want out, out, you know, who do we want to produce and those students that we want to produce and, and just getting by isn't going to get us where we want to be. Now, do I see us eventually moving to the DAT as the entry into the profession? I don't, I don't know if I see that just yet. I think that that's probably outside of that 15 year, um, you know, look ahead just because it has taken so long to get through to get to the professional master's level. Um, But I see that there is value of having training after becoming certified. You know, I think I think that specialty training after becoming certified is going to be really important, especially for those that are entering into those maybe non-traditional sites. So I love the idea of these residencies that are accredited, that are held to certain expectations, that have standards that they have to provide, because those residencies are creating specialties and they're creating specialists. And we need some specialists. Not everybody needs to be a specialist. We need a lot of generalists, right? Depending upon the setting, in a college and university setting, I need a combination of generalists, but I also might need a couple specialists, especially Absolutely. individuals. And so I think that that the residencies, I, I personally feel, again, this is my personal opinion, that I feel that the residencies are to me more valuable than some of the DATs or, or currently you know, that piece, because in my mind, a DAT isn't, isn't right now proving to provide a salary bump for people who have them. Right. Right. So I, in good conscience, have a hard time justifying a student going out and taking student loans to, to do 60 credit hours of a DAT if it's not going to eventually get them salary. Now, I think it possibly could, and I think it, it probably will in the long run, but we have a hard enough time with employers valuing the BOC certification to pay people well enough. I think we have employers who who maybe can't even value a master, a post certification masters. So I think that 
that the DAT has so much potential for post-certification experience and education, but right now in my mind, what's making a bigger impact are the residencies. Um, because you can focalize, and, and people who are doing the residencies right, becoming accredited, are the people that are coming out of them, their skill sets are amazing. So, I mean, that's where I see us going is I, I see more people electing to become specialists. So this is kind of going off of it, but getting more into some of the legal things. Like, obviously, what you're able to do is dictated by your practice act, and that's going to vary state to state. And uh, we right. get some things here just in terms of those skill sets. Like, right. you foresee, and I, and I don't. I actually even pretend to know if this is part of the reason the PTs went from a master's to a doctorate, but is right. the master's level degree enough to potentially argue up into legislation of, you know, like dry kneeling is an example, potentially ordering x-rays, like yes, team sutures, but does that include the ability to administer the, you know, the medication in order to right. make sutures tolerable? Because right. even right. our physician who is very, open to athletic trainers doing a lot of different things and trusts us, you know, as he gets to obviously know you better. He's like, well, yeah, you can do the sutures. He goes, the only thing I'd see as the drawback is what do you do about making, putting in the medication? He goes, that's the only kind of hiccup I see is, you know, I, I could see that being an argument for going DAT or does the MS plus residencies allow those arguments to be made or is it all just about money and politics? Cause that's obviously, yeah, and I think that's a great question to ask. And I think what it comes down to is I don't know. I think that having a master's as an entry level definitely makes those people in higher places listen a little bit better, right? Um, you're not in the same category as, a, a, you know, and again, these are not any slams against any, against any other profession, but a PTA or uh, an EMT or, or any of that. You, you, we have more training. We have more knowledge. We have different degrees. So I think that, that the degree will definitely make people take notice. Um, but ultimately, I think it's valuing the BOC certification and whether or not states – state organizations are willing to, to go through that practice act. I think um, the inroads that Tory has made with the APTA um, at the national level probably right. helps, but um, it's whether or not those state APTA, you know, organizations are going to battle and, and question it. You know, you know, living in Oklahoma, we have a pretty wide open practice act. It's, it's legitimately whatever your doctor signs off on, but with the only caveat is the only thing that would stop us is that medication piece. Like yep. the only thing our state practice act says is you cannot administer a medication um, or you cannot inject a, a medication, which you know, as well as I do that there are athletic trainers who are doing injections in, in physicians offices, but that's a whole other, that's a, that's a whole other uh, issue there. But, you know, I, I think that um, it's going to be really interesting as the states start to open up their practice acts or be willing to open it up, how, how the NATA and APTA national organizations help them out and, and muddy those waters and, and help 
do that. You know, we're lucky in Oklahoma that we actually don't have to open up our act. We have to open up like our definitions. Um, Cause I think they, they've figured out that they don't actually have to rewrite the whole thing. They just have to um, go through a small piece that nobody could challenge. Okay. Um, but, but I think, I think going to the master's level definitely helps because it, establishes credibility and it establishes peer professions um, of the same level that do have third-party reimbursement that do have all of those things you know look at OTs and, and that piece you don't need a, a doctorate for speech path and, and, and the audiology so I, th I think the master's level is going to be more helpful I don't know if if being a DAT would be helpful or not right um, if, if that was the entry level so many things to figure out. Right. I, I mean, it's, it's a crazy idea. And, and I think so many states are just really hesitant to, to start thinking about that. But you've got to, you know, and I know I hate the fact that we're using Katie and the education programs to kind of push those state practice acts along. But if you look at the new 2020 standards, mm -hmm. um, they themselves, even without suturing, challenge. Um, they they challenge some pr state practice acts. I mean, we're we're. I don't think there's anything wrong with athletic trainers eventually being able to order X-rays and order non-narcotic and non-paid, you know, prescription medications. You know, in conjunction with a PA or a physician. You know. I'm well trained enough to know what a sinus infection looks like. You know, I've seen enough of them. We, you know, I mean, there, there's some basic, you know, basic medications. It's like, well, why, why should I have to wait if I know that that's eventually what the doctor's going to do? Cause the doctor's going to look at me and say, well, what do you think? Well, this is what I think I need. Um, but, but I do think that the, the new standards are going to challenge the practice acts. I mean, I'll be very curious to see how that all plays out. I know there's been discussion even in Wisconsin about removing the physician necessity with, with some of the stuff and just the education with it. And our practice act is pretty loose in its wording. So it's up to interpretation. So like at no point does it right. say, like it says we can do trigger point therapy. Well, it doesn't say how right. we can do trigger point therapy. So we can get right. creative with that and we'll physician sign off and, you know, clearing right. their legal, like, it hasn't been an issue, which has been nice to have the physician support um, as well. Right. That, so. And I think that's the group, you know, as much as playing nice with the PTs, I think getting the physicians on board and getting them being vocal advocates, especially as they start to work with some of these um, professional master's level students and being like, hey, no, they actually do know their stuff. It doesn't matter if they've just walked out of their, their, you know, BOC exam and are now certified. They're very knowledgeable about things. I mean, we're teaching stuff that we didn't teach, I, that I didn't learn, that you didn't learn. I mean, the education requirements have just grown leaps and bounds into, into areas that we really thrive. Right. And for good reason. So this kind of came up and it's, related but we kind of touched on it um and if you get on any kind of twitter social media storm with it just the compensation and the pay and you know the residency programs and then some 
this is, I would say, more on the university side when you see these things. You know, we're looking for a 12-month intern that we're going to pay 10 grand plus maybe throw some food at you. And, you know, or they've kind of switched the, the graduate assistant to an internship, which is really, right. you know, grunt work. And then go pay for your um, own master's degree on top of that. Like, you have thought I've got, I've got my own personal thoughts on it, but what are your thoughts on trying to break through that barrier? I know I, and some people I've talked to, they think we've potentially oversaturated, you know, per having a lot of programs and for undergrad and right. things like that we're now, you know, people are just taking jobs because they need jobs. Like, do we almost now need to like, again, like condense that down, you know, with the programs, right. making sure, you know, obviously enough programs survive and thrive, but your thoughts. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's ironic because Tori's letter in the last NATA news kind of echoes what we talk to our students about, which is, it is, it is twofold. It is up to the students who are graduating and the people who are out there taking these jobs to say, to stand up and say no, right? There, there are jobs out there that pay well, but unfortunately, they're not the quote unquote high profile jobs, but yes, our students that are graduating, the people who are taking these jobs need to learn how to say no. But in my personal opinion, shame on those places right. who are out there advertising them and we need to shame them. We need to call them on it. Right. I had uh, somebody email me about a, an intern position at the university of Alabama that was going to pay $18,000 for 12 months and you had to work. But no, it wasn't. It was $13,000 and you could only make a certain amount of money. And I was just like, why are you proud of this? Right. Shame on you. I know how much money the university of Alabama makes. And their strength coach. <laughs> yes. So, so to me, it's, <laughs> We need, as a profession, and I and I hate to say the word, but we need to shame those athletic directors. We need to shame those head athletic trainers, directors of sports medicine, and say, put them out there and say, you know what? Who are you, and who do you think you are? It's students don't need, and this is the, okay. I will step on my my soapbox for a minute. A student who's coming out of a master's level professional program does not need two years of clinical experience to get a college job because at a college, there is a staff that's surrounding them that can provide them support when they need it, but also allow them to foster their autonomy. The place that a student who's coming out of a professional master's, unless they're highly well qualified or, you know, really ready to go, it scares me that we're sending them out to these small high schools that don't have athletic trainers there they're the first athletic trainer they don't have a support system they don't have mentorship transition to practice relies on a good quality mentorship from an employer a good quality orientation and a support system so i look at those people who are advertising internships for twelve thousand dollars but they're also advertising uh staff positions that require two years of clinical experience you don't need two years of clinical experience to work at a college. No offense. Like there's other people there, but again, that's my, my personal opinion. But I, I think that 
that we as a profession need to call the people who are doing the, and offering those jobs and we need to call them on the carpet and say it's not okay and to tell our students and reinforce our students do not, not take an internship an internship just basically means slave labor and residency is different an accredited residency and that's that's the other key if they want to do a residency a good residency does require two years of clinical experience and a good residency is accredited through katie so if you want to become a specialist a specialist you want to go through an accredited residency program you don't need to go to you know internship residency fellowship those are all mythical things to say, I'm going to pay you less than uh, uh, per hour than I personally pay the person who cleans my house. Right. And that's what we need to instill in our students is it's not okay. Yeah, it's tough. We have three part-time physicians here that don't pay awesome. They pay around 20, but we also, it's a nine month and we require 24 to 25 hours a week because they're right. Yeah, 0.56. So you can go and get an extra right. job. And I will literally tell you, exactly. go you don't need to be here. Like, this is unfortunately all we can get from the university, but we're also not going to try and screw you in the process. So, exactly. And, and I think that's that's what I'm saying is if you're, if you're only able to pay them 20 hours a week, a, a wage that is for 20 hours a week, only require them to work for 20 hours a week. Right. But don't, don't hire them at – you know, a large power five D one university, expect them to work 60 to 70 hours a week and pay 15,000. Right. It doesn't work that way. It's not okay. But uh, I, we, I'm very passionate about it because I, I've seen some of our students go out and take these internships and I'm like, why, why do you need to do that? And halfway through they're like, yeah, it was kind of a waste. All I did was work. Yeah. You, you, you don't need to do that. Right. You know, you don't need to learn the, the quote-unquote grind. You were fully immersed in a clinical rotation, your last one, for 13 weeks. You learned the grind. You, you lived the grind. You don't need to go and do that. But it's a, it's a paradigm shift for some of our employers. And it's a paradigm shift for some of our older athletic trainers who, who feel like you've got to have all of this stuff. And it's like, but, but you don't. Yeah. Don't you want a highly qualified, highly skilled employee rather than a grunt that I'm going to use and abuse, burn out, and they're not going to stay in the profession? Right. Because that's what happens. Those kids that take those jobs realize that they're not getting paid for what they're doing, and they leave. They can go work at a, at a fitness gym as a personal trainer for the same amount of money. Yep. Why, why are we doing it? medical devices for good good right 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 i mean it's it's sad it it, to me it's just it's it's very sad um anything else you wanted to cover that we didn't get to in these just keeping an eye on time and whatnot you know i think um i think the big thing is is you know if if people who are listening are are concerned about well what what do these master students know what do they know what are they getting i think they need to seek out a program and ask those questions 
become a preceptor for a student because when you're working with somebody who is a little bit more mature, who knows that they want to go into this as a profession, the students are different and they're very excited. They're very driven. They want to be there. And so, you know, the change to the masters has, has brought a lot of really positive things and, and, you know, the great thing is there's other programs, you know, now with the four week required immersive experience, you could have somebody for a minimum of four weeks. Like it's great. You know, all of the things that we as, as employers worry about when students enter the profession, do they know how to do, fill out paperwork? Do they know how to look at the policies and procedures? Man, well, if they're there for four weeks, they darn well better be doing insurance paperwork. They better be doing all of those, those components that maybe at the undergraduate level, because they were only there pre-practice, practice, and post-practice, they didn't get Right. Um, so they're getting more. And so I, I think people need to, to just be open-minded and, and maybe get some experience and get some exposure because you're going to be pleasantly surprised with the quality of students that, that the master's level are producing. Perfect. Well, jumping into some of those five questions, I'm going to, uh, it's going to be four cause we kind of already asked one about the future sure. things, but what advice would you go back, give yourself, as a young athletic trainer and kind of, if you could kind of just set the example of where you would be at. Sure. Uh, I think looking at my younger self, um, I would tell myself even as a graduate student, but especially when I got into my first clinical job, um, is to not be afraid to voice your concerns and not to be afraid to be an advocate for yourself. Um, I think that as a graduate student, um, I had a really different experience and, and I had a great clinical experience, but from a, an employee perspective, um, you know, I wasn't a great advocate for myself. I didn't learn how to say no. I didn't learn um, how to draw the line in the sand, both with my coworkers, but also with my patients. And I think as a young athletic trainer, that's what I, I probably would tell myself. Learn how to say no earlier on in life. Um, because when it comes to work-life balance, when it comes to burnout, when it comes to being happy with a profession and staying in a profession, um, I think there's that. I think the other thing I would tell myself is don't be afraid to, to listen to your gut when it comes to finding your path in the profession. Cause there's lots of paths, um, that it, that it's okay to be a traditional collegiate athletic trainer. Cause I think for a while there, I was like, do what, you know, do I really want to go into academia and, and my mentor, you know, my person who I always called and he was like, I always knew you were going to end up there. I was just waiting for you to figure it out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, well, you could have told me. He's like, no, you, you've got to figure it out yourself. And he goes, you, every two years you were like, Oh, maybe I should go get a doctorate. Maybe I should go into teaching. He goes, it's okay to say, you know what? I did it. I lived it. I had some great experiences. I traveled the world, but it's okay. I want to be in academia. So right. That's the two things I would tell myself. Awesome. Um, what has been one of the most influential resources you found in your career? Uh, absolutely, 100% my, my mentorship network. Um, the people that, that I still to this day when I have a question or a crisis of conscience or, or I just don't know what to do, I think 
I have two or three people that I know I could pick up the phone today and be like, I got, I, I need to, to have, to get your ear for about 20 minutes and help me to walk my through way through that. Um, you know, we're all going to get really good clinical skills. We're all going to be great clinicians and, and get out there. But I think the best resource you can have is a, a good Rolodex of people that can help you work your way through a problem, be it clinically, be it professionally, be it personally. Uh, that Rolodex is really important. Seems to be a common theme on a good one at that. Yeah. <laughs> this might be hard because we've talked about a lot of things, but if you could change or eliminate one thing, it could be like a modality or just common practice or mindset in the field of athletic training, what would it be? Um, I would absolutely uh, eliminate the mindset that you have to make every coach happy and you have to make every patient happy because we tend to want to be people pleasers as a profession and we tend to want to be everything for our patients. And I really am hoping in my, in my students to change that mindset that it's okay not to be everything. And it, it's okay some days to say no. And it's okay some days to say, well, you're not happy, but that's life. Mm -hmm. Life is is full of ups and downs and, and positives and negatives. And so I think, I really think as a profession, it'd be really good for us. And I think it would help us with the hours. I think it would help us with the pay, but really just change the mindset that, that you've got to be an advocate for yourself and it's okay to piss people off. I like that. I've learned that more and more over the last couple of years uh, than I've ever thought I would, but to your saying no thing, I've learned that no is also is an answer and an explanation all at the same time. Yeah. That's, yeah. Been, that's been a big one, and I've repeated that a lot. Yeah, and it's tough. I mean, it's tough mm -hmm. when you've got, you know, a high-profile coach sitting there staring you down at the end of a table saying, I need – no, no. No, I'm not going to do an extra 6 a.m. workout because you are having a bad day. Right. No, I'm not going to, you know, completely rearrange my life because it's okay. And no patient, just because you want to do this doesn't mean it's the best thing for you today. Uh, last question of it is, what does being an athletic trainer mean to you? You know, being an athletic trainer for me – it's multifaceted, you know, obviously I want to advocate for the best patient care possible, right? I, I want our patients to, to come in and, and see an athletic trainer and get great customer service while they do say no. Um, and, you know, come out of it as being an advocate for the profession. Um, on a more personal note, what mean what being an athletic trainer right now for me means is doing everything I possibly could do to ensure that the next generation of athletic trainers are a amazing, highly qualified, highly skilled, excellent practitioners, but also don't have to go through some of the struggles that my generation of athletic trainers went through. And I think being a voice for, for both the patient and for the student, because honestly, better patient care occurs when you don't work 70 hour weeks. Right. You know, sometimes, sometimes a 70 hour week happens. That should be the exception. It shouldn't be the norm. 
right? right? You have pre-season. it. Okay. Those are times that that's, that's, you know, that's okay. But the rest of the time, good patient care means my athletic trainer has a life. It means my athletic trainer has uh, hobbies. Huh. You know, my athletic trainer can sleep. My athletic trainer doesn't have to shovel their lunch in, in five minutes between patients. Um, but, but self-care for the athletic trainer is just as important as good quality patient care. Be that voice. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. Um, kind of in kind of closing and everything, if people wanted to find you or connect with you, is there any place that they could do that? Sure. Uh, so you can find me on the OSU uh, Center for Health Sciences website. Uh, my email is my first and last name, uh, first dot last name. Uh, online, Twitter, I think I'm GenVATC. Uh, and uh, if not, they can also look at the OK State MAT Twitter account as well as Instagram accounts. Um, the best way to, to get in touch with me is probably either email or online, but uh, I'd be happy to answer any questions or, or you know, join the discussion that people have. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being uh, on the show. We appreciate it. Hey, no problem. Looking forward to, to the end result. Absolutely.